I'm going to focus on storms and floods. Now, I recognize, I believe, that last year your major theme was the 55 flood. So I'm not actually going to talk about the flood bit about that. But I do want to talk about the storm bits surrounding that and then make a wider picture in terms of the storms associated with the Hunter region and the river uh, since uh, in the early 1800s. Okay? Um, then uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the agricultural activities along the river and what kind of problems from an environmental po point of view these, those have brought and the mining activities, but also talk about leading up to today some of the current efforts to try to minimize those impacts and return part of the river anyway to its original state. Okay? I will attempt to focus on Maitland, but notice the word sometimes. I do have to think in broader terms in order to be able to give this. I always like to talk about or tell people who am I talking to a little bit about where my information comes from. And the first one is advances in environmental management in the Hunter region. And that was put together by the Hunter in uh, Environmental Institute in, in 2000. And it's this little book right here. Okay? And I, when we put this together, we talked all about lots of different things, anything from air pollution to biodiversity and conservation to the river to the port and the harbor, I don't think we really had an idea that this might have some historical interest. But there is enough information here, the background, so that I can add or use it to support what I'm going to be talking about. Um, so uh, Hunter Environment Institute was formed in the 1980s and is still going strong. It's a very good program, and it's certainly focused very much on the local environment. The second re reference is by Callaghan and Power on major coastal flooding in Southeast Australia from 1860 to 2012 from the Amos Journal. <clears throat> and um, that uh, is very useful from the point of view of weather, weather information and, and history associated with those storms. Then various publications by Anita Chalmers and Wayne Erskine at the University of Newcastle Central Coast. These are more mainly focused on two things, biodiversity and riparian work along the river, but also geomorphology. And finally, the Flickr website, which I've learned to love and use when we were working on our book. The Flickr website is very useful information for lots of different photos. And I have used some of these photos to illustrate my talk tonight, and particularly acknowledge the Maitland City Council ownership of some of these photos. Um, very, very useful. I will say at the beginning, however, that since humans white settlement in the Hunter Valley and on the river, the white settlers and the white agriculturists and miners have not been kind to the river. And I think probably most of you who have had some historical knowledge about the river would know that. And I'm going to talk about that and some of these problems as we go along today. Whereas before the white settlers came, the aboriginal, I understand that the aboriginals took care of the river, they maintained the river, they ensured that the river maintained its natural environment. So it's a bit, uh, unfortunately, it's a bit pr a problematic associated with, uh, the, with the white settlements after uh, 1788. Okay, let's talk a little bit about storms and floods first and using, um, using Callaghan and Power as a, as, a, as a main reference for this. Um, they did quite a lot of work to look at the history of storms affecting the Hunter River uh, over time. Uh, the, there's a growing interest in historical weather events anyway around the world. 
Um, I'll mention this a little bit later when I talk about some of the information, new information I have on that from the Hunter. But since 1860, 39 storms leading to major flooding events were identified associated with Maitland and Newcastle. Okay? Uh, CP, Callaghan and Power, describes 23 of these as East Coast lows and eight of these as tropical interactions. And I'm going to explain what those two are in just a minute. Okay? Historically, the storms, the period of most frequent storms with the biggest impact were June 1949 to August 1952, where they had seven major storms and floods in the Hunter River and in the Maitland area. 1870 also had three major storms and extensive flooding, and as you will see in a minute, there was one up here, a period in the 1800s that also had an important a couple of periods of, of flooding and storms. So this is going to be brand new flood information or information about storms, uh, which I have been able to extract from our current historical weather data project. Now the historical weather data project involves Gianni de Gravio from the history unit at the, at the Moody Library from the cultural uh, collections. It involves uh, Ken Thornton, who is a historian, uh, engineer slash historian. Uh, and it involves uh, Lyndon Ashcroft, who is a young lady who is a very good historical meteorologist who works for the Bureau of Meteorology in Melbourne. And we have been able, able to obtain a series of weather diaries, books that were donated to the library, which we've been very busy scanning, putting into the website. You can, you can access them. Everybody can look at them. But then in order for us to use them, we actually have to have the numbers, the information digitized into spreadsheets. And so I have been able to arrange for 25 online so people uh, through crowdsourcing to help us do this. And there are six or seven that are very, very keen. Okay. Um, so basically what we've discovered in one of these data sets, the one that actually goes back to 1843, is a table of flood levels, now this will be in feet, from the Maitland Mercury between 1819 and 1870. And the interesting thing about this is this overlaps with this uh, uh, Callaghan and Power information for 1864 to 1870. So the mesh. And so I can claim that I can extend CP's weather record back to about 1819. And this is the table that was in the packet of information we obtained. So the month and the year is on the left-hand side, and admittedly the data at the beginning is pretty sketchy. This is 1819 or 1820. But then as you work your way into later years, you can see, for example, that the period for June 1857 to August 1857, they had three major floods. For July 1861 to August 1861, there were two. And then there were a whole bunch of series of floods, five of them, in 1864, okay? And the interesting thing is that there are records of flood levels at Dalwood, which was where uh, Wyndham Estate Vineyard is, for West Maitland, which is close to here, of course, and for Morpeth, with the most, the longest, the biggest record at West Maitland. So to me, this is encouraging Unfortunately, I don't have any storm specifics to link with this data yet. This is brand new. We only, we only discovered this about three weeks ago. 
So unless you know about it already, as being historians, this is the first time I've been able to present it to anybody. Uh, to me, it's pretty exciting, and it will fit into the overall picture of the weather in, and climate evaluation in, in the Hunter Valley as we go along uh, and obtain some more of these data sets. So obviously the most famous is the Maitland flood of 26, 22 to 26 February. Um, the, uh, Callaghan and Parr identified this as a, as a tropical interaction storm. Okay, so one of the, uh, that, that's the one that's, there are eight of them in the data set. And what this means is there's a deep low link to the tropical moisture coming from the, the, uh, the monsoon area to the north of Australia interacting with an existing low pressure system as it marched up the coast and strong northeast airflow. So you actually had three sources of moisture interacting all at once. This is very rare in the record. Okay? Um, Alan Tweedy, who was my predecessor, predecessor at the University of Newcastle, and he was a, a hydrologist, climatologist, published a paper in the early 1960s in the Australian, Geographical uh, the Australian Geographer who identified these characteristics, but in somewhat of not quite specific fashion. So basically, the extensive flooding and subsequent response from this storm, as you all know now, changed the character of the river in the Maitland area and Singleton and other places uh, and surrounding areas significantly. So that's what the weather map looked like in the 25th of, of, of February, 1955. Uh, the low pressure system is, is sitting not over Newcastle, but inland, okay? The extensive incoming moisture from the low pressure system, right there, and up uh, from the tropical monsoon area, the low is moving north, and so we've got moisture coming from the southeast area in Tasman Sea, and the northeast airflow coming in this way is all interacting into the, this area right here. So Dubbo is there and Walgett is there. The interesting thing is the rainfall distribution from the 21st to the 28th of February did not show maximums in the Hunter Valley. Nevertire was where the maximum rainfall fell. But there was plenty of rain in the upper Hunter catchment area. So there's Maitland down there and there's Musselbrook, okay? And if you have acknowledged the fact that there was a period of moisture rainfall before the storm for two or three months, and therefore the soil was apparently quite saturated. It is not surprising that almost all of this rain turned into flood and came down the river, okay? Um, I hate to think what might have happened, though, if this rainfall peak moved over here. You had it bad, there were 25 people that killed during that storm. I think it would have been a lot worse, okay? Um, so, as a result, the modifications of the Hunter River around this Maitland area were significant. The Hunter Valley Research Foundation was originally founded or formed to develop a process to protect the river and the area at Maitland and Newcastle against further flooding like this. For four years, they worked on it. They came up with a plan, and they moved on to economics. But this was the result, or is the result, of, albeit probably modified since this diagram was put together, uh, which has been pretty good for floods after 1955 in terms of protection 
of Maitland in the area. Now, I want to talk a little bit about East Coast Low as well, because that's a different kind of storm, and that can bring flooding to the Maitland area, but not to the same extent as the tropical interaction storms. The East Coast Low is classic. The most familiar one recently is the 2007 Queen's Birthday Weekend storm that blitzed Dungog. Um, Dungog is still recovering, okay? So basically it occurs mainly during the period of autumn transition to winter. You have warm sea surface temperatures. Existing low centers are trough, exists in the, in, outside, uh, in the Tasman Sea. You have a very strong, cool pool of cold air in the upper troposphere. And on the weather map, a colored one, nice one, looks like that. This very cold air pool of air sitting right here is a trigger. It acts to create great instability in the overall vertical atmosphere. The Northwest Jet Stream runs, Jet Stream is a very large, strong river of air that's between, at the top of the troposphere, about 10 k's or something like that. And it streams down across southern Queensland from the northwest, basically trapping the storm on, at the, on the coast, okay? You have very rapid, very intense convection, and they're short-term coastal storms. Um, how many uh, of you were around here in 1974 for the Cigna storm? Oh, look at that. You're all showing your age. You know that, okay? Um, these are short-term coastal storms. They're not the same kind of storm as, as a, a tropical interaction storm. And so this is what the weather map looked like for the east coast low of the June 7th to 9th, 2007, the storm that blitzed Dungog. And the low is sitting right off the coast of Newcastle right there. And a very strong, quite strong onshore winds and quite a lot of rainfall moving into the valley, but from the east rather than from the south and the north. This is what the radar looks like. Now, I don't know whether you can see. Maitland is right there. You see these little pink patches? Very, very strong rain. Okay? But the key thing, the key difference about this storm compared to the tropical interaction is that this storm did not influence the upper hunter. It only influenced the lower hunter. So while you had local flooding and problems in the lower hunter area, you didn't get anything up here. And the tropical interaction storms, the ones from the 55 flood light, that's where your major flooding comes. Oops, because this is the rainfall from the, 19, from the 2007 storm. All the red numbers are records. All the red numbers are records, okay? And there's no Maitland data there. But uh, there's Tokal and Singleton and, and uh, University of Nobbies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you had a lot of rain in the lower Hunter and a little bit of rain in Scone area or the upper Hunter, but nowhere to the degree of the impact of the, of the other types of storms. Okay, that's enough about those storms. I want to talk a little bit about the river now and some of the environmental impacts. And um, we actually used this in, in my book, in Nancy and I, but we didn't use it to illustrate the river. We used it to illustrate the air pollution coming out of the steamship. This is from 1860. And the reason I put this in is because this is an indication that the river was navigable 
to Morpeth in 1860. But fairly soon after that, I understand, navigability of the river began to disappear. And I'll talk a little bit about why. So there were early environmental problems once that people from overseas, from England, began to move into the area and they discovered the value of the grazing and farming along the river, the river, uh, the river floodplain. Um, they began to use European practices of farming and activities and try to use that within the Australian environment. It didn't work very well. So basically, uh, the lower hunter and uh, quite a lot of the other hunter were quite heavily forested with, I believe, cedar. A lot of that was cleared out for farming purposes and grazing purposes, uh, and particularly along the riverbanks. The land, water, and runoff relationships were then changed. The hydrology was changed. Instead of the trees being there to help soak up the moisture and stabilize the soil, those were now gone and you began to get much more severe runoff associated with the rainfall and the storms. There was river channel widening, partly due to bank erosion associated with this alteration of land and water runoff, but also partly deliberately by some of the farming activities so that the farmers could have better access to, to the river water. There was instability and enhanced flooding problems associated with this that was built up over time. Okay? Uh, the Hunter River was recognized in several types of research, uh, oops, sorry, as, as a prime example of major degradation. And I had a, a bit of the research by uh, Anita Chalmers and, and Wayne Erskine suggest that there were several surveys since 1945 that all have been sort of, of mixed conclusions, but have shown that at least 45 to 58% of the catchment was damaged or affected by human activity. That's a lot, if you think about it, a lot, okay? The problems associated with this affected the water, water quality of the river. Salinity, the, the soils in the, in the Hunter region are saline anyway. So when you have human activities that affect the soil water table and the, you take the trees out and the salts can come up to the surface, you have salinity problems. And then that can wash into the river and affect the farmlands, the, the farming and grazing lands. So you have natural salinity, but then you have an oh, anthropogenic. Uh, basically, the salinity problems were a, a major problems associated with farming, and as you'll see in a little bit, associated with mining. Not only that, the use of excess fertilizers as the, uh, as the uh, development of the river wore on created nutrient loadings. And the nutrient loadings were unnatural, went into the river. There was bacterial contamination asso oops, associated with human septic problems and livestock. Effectively, for the first several decades, the river was used basically as a sewer. Okay. And that happened in Sydney, too, if you look at the history of Tank Stream and various places like that. Um, turbidity. Turbidity is excess particle loading in the river. So when any of you have soil washing into the river, you see lots of dirt material. That creates excess turbidity and removes clarity of the water and creates problems. Um, major sources, we mentioned, we mentioned agriculture, but urbanization, growth over time, not 
so much in the 1800s, but later in the 1900s and early 2000s, and mining, which I'll get to in a minute, and the influence on the river flows and water quality at Maitland then depended on what happened to the river upstream and whether it was managed properly. So when the settlers first came here, the white settlers, obviously they saw the Hunter River area as a very attractive for floodplain cropping, for cattle and dairy, and eventually vineyards. Okay? Um, catchment became highly developed over time but especially since 1990, big developments over 1980. The particular need for agriculture is water for irrigation. And when you don't have any control systems or perhaps education systems in place, I think it is quite true to say that agricultures tend to overuse water for irrigation. They see water as a major source to help their crops, but they get carried away. Okay? And I mentioned already the rivers used as a waste as a waste dump before the environmental impacts were properly recognized. Pollution from fertilizers, algal blooms occasionally, not so much anymore, but they do occasionally occur. Very high phosphorus levels associated with runoffs and from, from fertilizers. Vineyard and dairy waste simply went into the water. Land degradation, sedimentation runoff acid sulfate and saline soils. The soils that were buried or were under uh, natural control systems that were then exposed to the air, and then you had chemical reactions, that's where the acidity comes from. Acid sulfate soils are unusable for anything. You cannot do anything with it. And if you add saline into that, it's even worse. Okay. Bank erosion, we mentioned that already. River riding, we mentioned that already. Um, so basically, the needs for irrigation and irresponsible irrigation contributed to runoff and erosion and leached nutrients and increased turbidity in the soil and uh, in the water. So a couple of photos now. This was, uh, we believe, I think, from the early 1800s. Uh, I don't ha have an, a reference. The uh, uh, Flickr site didn't have a reference for this. Very tranquil. I guess it's a painting, I believe, with lovely cows sitting on the, along the river. That's okay until the cows decide to go to the river and get something to drink. And they start trampling the vegetation on the river and ruining the riverbank. This is the Hunter River from Belmore Bridge in 1945. And uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You can look at these photos and say, look at all the stuff they did wrong then. So are we able to do something about it to fix it up? So here we have an unprotected riverbank. Okay. Uh, this is a fence, I think. Uh, looks like a pretty weak fence. I suspect cattle who wanted to could simply walk through the fence, get down to the river, and get into this area. There's a few bits of vegetation along here, which is good because that helps protect the bank a little bit. But you can see along here quite a steep bank, these areas, which must relate to the fact that you're scouring from the river under high river flows. And once you do that, you lose valuable soil and you lose the underpinning to the riverbank. That all goes in the water, adding to turbidity and nutrient problems. Okay? Now I apologize for this, I could not get this very clearly, but what I wanted to do is illustrate as best as I could the fact that you have along here houses that are 
built way too close to the edge of the river. And the bank is actually quite steep in this photo. And all you need here, because this is all cleared away, is a couple of floods or heavy rainstorms, and effectively you will lose these houses into the river, okay? And the bank along this side is similar to the bank in the other picture. It's unprotected. Cattle and other activities, other uh, sheep can get down into this area, drink the water, which they would want, but they don't uh, do very much good for the riverbank itself. Of course, you have other human activities. This is bridge construction in the early 1900s across the river. Now, I, didn't, I, can't, I could not identify from the Flickr website exactly where this is. Maybe you as historians will know, okay? Um, but when you're making, building a bridge and you have these big pylons, you're already altering the structure of the river, right? You're affecting the banks. The water coming down the river is going to be impeded by these pylons. Any debris coming down the river will be built up on the back of the pylons and will cause local excess problems on the riverbank itself. And I, do, I would say, it's fair to say, that the banks themselves were moved or changed by the builders of the bridge to get that. That's a railway bridge, okay, to get that bridge across. Now, you need a bridge across the river for progress, and so there were a few of them, but each one of them, were, and particularly in the early part of settlement, were built without real consideration of what it did to the environment of the river. And then you've got recreation. So this is 1949, Hunter River Hotel. Anybody been there? I don't, have you been there, right? Okay. Nice little spot along the river. These, uh, this is a, a little recreation boat going up the river. I think, I couldn't tell, but I don't think this has a motor. These two guys, it's like a, riding a bicycle. They're actually riding a bicycle to move the boat along the river because this is going along in a series of little treads, okay? Uh, so they're working hard, and there are maybe sort of five or so people in the boat itself. But people with recreation interests are a little bit careless about what they do about the environment. They would most likely throw litter in the river. It's an easy way of disposing of it, uh, particularly when there are no controls. Uh, and effectively, uh, it, I would say that this is probably a source, an area where some significant drinking might occur at certain times, right? So I'm guessing that that impact would also have some influence on the river itself, eventually. Okay, so what do we do about this? Well, fairly recently, within the last, say, 30, 40 years or so, there's been a major focus on management to try to improve agricultural practices on the river and to try to provide better protection for the river itself. The landholders have always had to balance the need for economic progress and market profits to, with environmental protection. And in the past, environmental protection has more or less finished second, but things are a lot better now, okay? The management procedures for water use have not given full priority to agriculture on the river. The agriculture has a low security designation which means loss of irrigation water allocations under dry conditions, the way we have now, dry conditions, right? Uh, in 1997, the New South Wales Water Reform Package was introduced, which is designed to better control agricultural practices and, and river protection. And there are various strategies that were introduced, such as the Hunter Nutrient Management Strategy, 
But the two I like the best are land care, which is a management tool. Now, is anybody here involved in a local land care group? Oh, oh, okay. Land care is actually very popular as a volunteer organization because it's oriented toward protection of land and water and the environment uh, and the coast. It initially started in Victoria in 1986 and nationally became nationally in 89 and it became recognized by uh, both state and federal governments. It started as a, a small group of, of people but as an organization that had many benefits from an environmental point of view, it grew rapidly over time. And now there are many land care groups in the Hunter. How many of you have been to the, the Shortland Wetland Center? Okay. Well, the volunteers there can be considered to be a land care group. Okay. All right. So basically, priority is education, on the ground works, local area planning, land and water protection, and communication is a key approach. So basically, any time you start something like this and you want to establish a benefit from a different point of view besides economics, it can be hard going. Uh, you have somebody on the land who's been there for 50 years and done it the same way all the time and sort of doesn't really fully um, accept some of the environmental problems, then it's hard to get that person to change. But I've always believed that with good communication and particularly an economic argument where you can establish to those people the economic benefit of better practices for their landscaping, that can win an argument for you, okay? So the funding for land care comes from national land care, bush care, and river care programs and incorporates farming for the future and planning and management of farm businesses and workshop education. I see I'm running a little over, I better keep move along here. The other thing is riparian vegetation protection, which is a newer program. And this is designed to manage the river banks themselves and it's critical to river survival. This is work that Anita Chalmers and Wayne Erskine at the Central Coast have been involved in. And basically what they do is they set up fence zones along the river as a buffer. And they then plant uh, different types of vegetation, both native vegetation and exotic species to help stabilize the riverbank. Um, it's, its major focus is now ecological sustainability to help, uh, and this has financial benefits all around, both for the people who use the river and for the people who use the land, okay? So it protects against erosion, soil loss, poor water quality, sediment and nutrient loss, weeds and wind erosion. And it can help the recovery of damaged river channels to a more natural state. Their work, Chalmers and Erskine's work, have been up in the Wooden Brook area, which is a tributary of the Hunter, and they've been able to establish quite clearly through several, public, several publications the benefits of doing this. Now, just a brief word, if I can have five more minutes, okay, about mining, okay. Mining is another problem. And early on, you had the underground mines, uh, the, the Maitland coal fields, for example, which were formed in the 1830s, 1820s, something like that. Historians need to tell me, okay. This is the CM number one colliery in C. Hampton, and basically 
this is quite a long time ago, uh, it's pretty grotty looking. So you have lots of air pollution, but you have water quality problems and uh, most of the things they do, did in this type of environment would never be acceptable now for, for both the workers and for the environment. But, as you know, mining is a coal. Coal is a key factor in hunter development and income. Um, the upper hunter has mainly open cut mines. These began on the small scale in the 1860s, uh, 1960s, but major expansion occurred beginning in the early 1980s, just after I came here in 1977. They, the, uh, the open cut coal mines, sorry, that are the major threat to the river. Because they, when they mine coal, leave voids. The voids collect water, groundwater, and this groundwater is often very saline. And they used to just dump it in the river. They can't do that anymore. And obviously there were continuing clashes with the agriculturists because when they were irrigating, they didn't want saline water for the irrigations, right? So this is Belgrade. Uh, I, I don't know when this was taken. Uh, I suspect uh, somewhere in the early 1900s, uh, lots of air pollution, 1890s, lots of air pollution, and standing water body, which was probably a spill pond, but perhaps this might have access to the river, and so when you're at high water levels or water levels and they want to get rid of the water, they dump it in the river. This is much more modern. This is Mount Arthur North, okay, outside of Musselbrook. And the river's up here, okay? Now, Mount Arthur North isn't directly on the river, but there's some other places that are, like Bengala, which is just over here on the other side of the mine. And initially, it was easy for the mines to just dump stuff in the river. So they can alter the river flows, and I've seen EISs where the mines have actually applied to change the river orientation and direction so they could mine the coal out of the banks of the river, okay? Um, mine runoff pollution, heavy metals, salinity, we mentioned already, river bank and bed and bank extraction. This is Drayton open cut, okay? Pretty, pretty miserable looking thing. Now a lot of these, this would be, a lot of this area in here, I don't know whether you can see the water from the back, but there are water ponds here and here and here and here and in here. Those turn out to be voids because once they take the coal out, there's not enough soil and other things to fill the voids in. If that stuff leaks in the river, the river's in trouble. So initial management for mining, 1973 Coal Mining Act, but that was regulation and punishment. It wouldn't work very well. Environmental Offenses and Penalties Act 1989, which is the basis of the current regulations, again, penalties. It really doesn't work that well. It's not very good. What works the best is the Hunter River Salinity Trading Scheme, which is a cooperative agreement with, between the miners, the farmers, and the government. And that means communication and support all the way around. This is first proposed in the 1990s in the Act by New South Wales government in 2002. And the cooperation between the mines and the government and the agricultures were to maximize water, maximize water flow usage but minimize water quality. The regional approach at that time was very unique, still is, okay? Saline water is defined, for those of you who like numbers, an excess of 400 microsiemens per centimeter, 
So you want to minimize, you don't want that kind of water going in the river. So basically you have to monitor the river and there's a whole series of saline water information data sets on the website for the EPA. So the process is you eliminate saline discharges during periods of low water flow. That means the mines must hold the water in their own area. They cannot put it in the river under conditions like we're under now, low river flow, right? They allow, the mines are also allowed to trade water flow discharge units when the water's high. So one mine who doesn't need all their discharge unit categories can sell it to another mine or trade it to another mine, which is pretty good, not a bad idea, okay? So you control discharges during, control discharges during periods of high water flow to define levels, but when you have flood flows, then the mines have access to high saline discharge periods because the high flood flows will then, uh, will then dilute the saline water and the minimal impacts on the river will occur. So the mines can plan for saline water discharges. The water authorities can better protect the environmental value of the river through monitoring exceedance penalties. You can maximize suitability for agriculture irrigation, and you can ensure best water quality and flow for users downstream. So this is in place now. It's very successful. And it's one of the reasons that generally the water quality coming into Maitland from the river is pretty good now. So I've introduced three environmental challenges, storms, farming and agricultural practices, and mining. Uh, initially, the European farmers and miners were not river friendly. Some of the major impacts in the river have created important environmental problems. But nowadays, good management, including good communication and cooperation, is the key to the Hunter River quality and survival. And you have land care, you have riparian sustainability, and the Hunter River salinity trading scheme is the three examples of that. There are others, but I thought those were pretty good. Thanks very much.